for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jake. I think I know most of you, but if I don't, please come say hi. And I apologise for not coming and saying hi earlier. Uh, I've got some things to say. Uh, if they're wrong or you don't like them, you can always email Chris. It's chris at cornerstonechristianchurch.com.au. That's where you want to send it. Uh, all jokes aside, it is, it is a real honour to get up here and, and talk today. And I hope it benefits you as much as it has benefited me to dive into this topic. As a church, we've kind of been intentionally going through this season of Advent together, exploring some key themes. So we had Josh speak about Advent being a time for Thanksgiving. Last week, Joy spoke on a time for patience. And today I'm here to talk about Advent, a time for humility. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly a visual person and I hope this little uh, map will be useful. It's just kind of an outline that I'll quickly take us through. And I've used some emojis to show my age. Um, So we're going to take a look at who is John the Baptist, the context behind his entry onto the scene, how he emulates great humility, and finally, humility for us. Best case scenario, everyone leaves edified. Worst case scenario, Chris has a full inbox on Monday. Um, Now, I would just like to invite James up, who's come along with Jimmy today. Um, He's going to do the reading for today. If you haven't met James, please make sure you do. He's a wonderful dude. Um, Yeah, thanks, mate. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I will try to be humble as much as I can. Um, So for those of you who don't know me, my name is James Rapia. Um, I've just recently joined this church family, and I'm very glad to be here, and I'm even more glad to be invited to speak just a little bit, you know, about John the Baptist. Um... If I make any mistakes, don't blame me, blame someone else. Apparently it's Chris. Um, Yeah, so today I'm just reading a little bit on John the Baptist, Um, just a couple of verses. Um, So here I go. Um, So I'm reading from 1 John, um, sorry, not 1 John, John 1, 6 to 8. And 19 to 28. So, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied with the words of Isaiah the prophet. 
I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happens at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Yeah, that's a clap. Thanks for reading that one, James. I might just, uh, might just quickly pray for us, if that's all right. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for another Sunday, another Sunday to reflect and remember who you are and in light of that, remember who we are. I pray that you would give us your grace this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Okay, so before we really get into that passage and into John, I do want to set the scene of where and kind of what this John the Baptist character is coming into. Uh, The reason I want to do this is because I feel the more we can get this, the more we understand about John, and the more we understand about John, the more we can learn from him. So please bear with me. Firstly, let's look at Israel, the history of this people John is being born into. If you look at the slide, there's a a visual representation, starting with kind of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Moses, a significant prophet and kind of like a messianic archetype or Jesus-like figure, emerges leading the people to liberation and establishing a covenant with God around 1400 BC. Around three, 400 years later, after the period of the judges, a shift occurs and the people, they kind of clamour for a king inspired by the neighbouring nations. Uh, concurrently, prophets emerge as pivotal conveyors of God's message, acting as divine mouthpieces through Israel's history. However, the prophetic tradition experiences kind of an apparent hiatus around 430 BC, some sort of kind of like prophetic long service leave. Um, (laughs) The end of Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, marks a perceived silent period in this really vital role for the nation and they kind of await further divine inspiration. So when we get to John the Baptist, Israel's come back from exile And there's no recognised or God-appointed king in place, nor has there been for about 700 years. And it's been about 400 years since they've had a prophet as well. And so relative comparison, you can see that kind of coloured square. After the period of Judges, it's kind of about over a third of their history. So it's a pretty kind of significant piece of time. And you you can probably imagine that the people are quite eager for something to happen, for something to change. Um... Now, although this kind of 400-year gap is labelled the silent period, there was certainly a lot going on. In Malachi's era, which marked the conclusion of the Old Testament, the Jews returned to Israel after Babylonian captivity. So that's good. Uh, The temple was rebuilt and the Jews were able to function again under the law and the priesthood. Also good. 
However, over the next hundreds of years, they were conquered by Greece, followed by Egypt, and a bit further down the line, they were under the rule of the Seleucid Empire. Now, trouble kind of really culminated with this figure called Antiochus Epiphanes in 171 BC, when he came in and he defiled the temple, sacrificing a pig to Zeus on the temple altar. And if you know much kind of about the Old Testament, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. It's not something people should be doing. So this heinous insult triggered, it was a violent revolt, an ignition to anger led by a Jew from the priestly line of Aaron, Judas uh, Maccabeus in 165 BC. It resulted in the recapture and cleansing of the Jerusalem temple, but unfortunately the insult was not yet complete and the Romans took control of the nation in 63 BC and Pompey intruded into the Holy of Holies, further embittering the people. Now, all that to say, what a roller coaster. You've got multiple cultural infusions, you have extended periods of fighting, rebellions, and the things that you kind of hold as sacred have been trampled on. So now, let's layer over some of the promises close to the heart of the nation around this time. So you have the Messiah, as Joy spoke about last week. All the promises and hints littered through the Old Testament. For example, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. That'd be good. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation. Also, a pretty good one. So to the extent you're able, try and kind of put yourself here. You can see how hope-loaded these promises are, how much you'd long for that after the insult and injury of the past hundred years. You'd also have a pretty strong desire as well for these promises to maybe manifest in, in a particular way. So in addition to the coming Messiah, we have this from Deuteronomy, where Moses speaks, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Didn't Moses lead the people out from under the hand of foreign nations, rescue them and take them to the promised land flowing with milk and honey? You know, that kind of prophet sounds good <laughs> right about now. And then finally, we have the promise that the prophet Elijah would return in Malachi 4. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, the reason I've kind of just thrown all that at you, a bunch of history and a bunch of scriptures, I want to show us something. For these people and for us, the coming of John and who he is or, and what he may or may not represent is a big deal. John isn't a small fry. He has more ink in secular history records at the time than even Jesus. This man's kind of bringing a storm. He represents a coming eschatological change. What the people have been yearning for. If anyone has reason to think highly of themselves, you know, it's this guy. Even John's birth is extraordinary. He's born to a barren woman announced by an angel. 
The angel says to Zechariah, John's dad, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. And even Jesus gives him a pretty lofty shout-out. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So I hope this helps us see and understand the background to these important questions that this delegation is asking. Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? These are loaded and important questions, questions that carry huge implications for the nation, for the religious leaders and for the potential fulfilment of people's hope. They're offices or positions that come with huge authority, likely huge amounts of power and influences. Offices that seem well within John's scope here to step into. So what does this great, unique, mighty, important man do? He shifts the focus off himself and onto Jesus, knowing clearly what he has come to do, referring to himself as the one mentioned in Isaiah 40, one who is here to make the way straight, to prepare the road. His objective here is clearly not self-seeking or or self-centered, but he's also not self-deprecating. He's not uncertain or timid. Rather, he knows what he's here to do, and he knows that it's not all about him. He's here to get the people's hearts ready. There's something about this attitude that I wish I emulated more of. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to do one of these surveys or you can relate to this little story I'm about to tell, but recently I was doing some job applications and they give you like a series of questions at the end, like, oh, which characteristic would you use to describe yourself? And one of the characteristics is humility. And I hate this question because I'm looking at the screen and you're like, okay, what's the humble response here? How do I appear humble? I mean, I'm a Christian. Humility should be a key descriptor of me, right? If I say I'm humble, then clearly I'm I'm probably not humble. But if I say I'm not humble and I think I'm humble, then the results at the end show that I'm not humble and I want it to. It's it's kind of like arcane trick question from the ages. (laughs) Now, I mentioned this funny little story just to say that I don't think it's the virtue of humility itself John's trying to emulate. I don't think he's operating with that thought of what do I say here or what do I need to do to appear humble. Rather, it's more of a natural happening of someone who's not inwardly focused. He knows what he's here to do and he's set on doing it as he looks to the coming saviour. It is this view of the saviour, an understanding of him, that informs his understanding of himself. And with that comes the confidence to focus outwardly. I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you don't know. He is one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I believe true humility is not self-deprecating, which is still, it's still self-focused, right? You're still focused on yourself, even if it's a very low view of yourself. I don't think John's trying to put himself down here. He's rather willing to shift importance from himself to someone far greater. The people need to have their hearts changed. They needed this kind of visceral opportunity to repent. A way needed to be made straight. 
And John offers this. It's a lofty, a lofty role. And this role brought lots of people to follow him, but it was never about his own accomplishments. We see this further in John 3. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. If we want to truly grow in humility, then this must be true of us also. There's an unworldly unselfishness, something so rich and powerful that he's even excited to be losing his influence when he knows that it's for a picture that's so much bigger than himself. He knows who Jesus is, which informs who he is. And as we too find our identity and security in Jesus, we can begin to have this rich confidence, which allows us to operate out of humility. Now I've just stolen a quote here, which uh, I quite like. Humility is a life lived rightly before God as we increasingly learn to see the reality that the centre of life is not ourselves, but God. Now, you probably can't talk about humility without talking about pride, so I'll make some quick comments. So pride, at its core, I believe, gets no pleasure out of having something. So the acquirement or procurement of something isn't pride, but it's the acquirement or procurement that surpasses the person next to you It kind of puts you above them. It's so tied to the pleasure of being above the rest or that feeling that you ought to be that puts you... Oh, sorry, I apologise. Pride makes us feel threatened when other people are rising up beside us. We need to kind of like insulate ourselves because of our own self-importance and ultimately we're just insecure as to whether we matter or not or even worse, we're so certain that we matter more than others that we look down upon them. Again, we end up consumed with self and how we stack up to everyone else, making it really hard to operate out of humility. So the history of this nation has been moving towards this almost crisis moment, right? The questions asked by the delegation to John the Baptist embody hope and they're on the cusp of being fulfilled. The nation looks to John here and John could have very well identified himself as someone he wasn't. He could have taken the loftier title. But in his humility, he resists, and we see his true greatness shine through. Now, we get insightful examples everywhere in the Bible, and in the little time I have left, uh, I think there's a great one we can see of people operating for God, but kind of with a very different attitude and spirit about it. So I'd like us to think to the discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees and their followers Kind of John 8, it'll just be up on the screen. To the Jews who believed in him, he said, if you, are, if you hold to my teachings, you are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, we have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. 
I tell you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father. This discourse goes on, but I'll leave it here for now. So used to being above and more holy, more devout, thus wealthier and much more well-respected than the common Jew, when their position is endangered, when their self-importance is threatened, we see the true colours come out. The zealous service offered is probably more of a, a facade than anything else. Here is someone far greater than they, the one they should be waiting for, expecting and revering, but with a series of kind of mental gymnastics are able to justify their own ungodly behaviour driven by self-preservation and a lofty view of themselves. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say we will be set free? Abraham is our father. There's a self-centeredness that is emanating here, very contrary to how we see John functioning and responding at this critical time in history. Their pride has made them blind to their need and ultimately blind to Jesus. Now, I'd like to posit a pretty groundbreaking truth to you all. The big inhibitor in my own personal humility is in fact not an ideal, or God forbid, not even a lack of Bible study, but it's a person. It's one I'm well acquainted with and one that's constantly and relentlessly wanting to bring themselves back to being the centre of the universe. None other than me. (laughs) As you can see, that's me winning the US Open. It's me as Brad Pitt. You know, what a guy. I've got to be so careful when pointing out the pride in others. It would be foolish not to think that same attitude can be found in me. Maybe it's when I'm offered the opportunity to preach today and instead of being grateful and honoured, I, I begin to think that I ought to be up here. I should have a platform. I feel important and, and valued. I mean, I've come such a long way. I have so much worth sharing and humility. I mean, they picked the right guy to speak on humility. <laughs> Not everyone could be humble like me. I'm up here because I deserve to be in, because others don't. Uh, Could I just get the band up? That would be cool. Thanks, guys. I can't help but recall John 15 when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Wrapped up in here is... What, what I think the secret is, a focus on being connected to Jesus above all else. This posture and position breeds humility in us because it so fully relies on someone else and takes the focus off ourselves. This connection gives us a secure identity which helps insulate us from the need to grasp for position and to feel better than others. It's out of this connection we gain the sight to see that I'm no more important than my brother and I don't need to be. And it's out of this connection we gain the strength to be serving rather than self-seeking. And it's when all these things are true of us, I don't think we would be thinking about whether we're being humble or not. We just will be. So this Advent, as we consider the Saviour who came and still is to come, let us reflect and pray on what it means to be humble remembering the one who is unapproachable, the one who is infinite, the true vine, the one which we see through this 
apocalyptic imagery with fire in his eyes. It was he who condescended to earth. It was him who was unapproachable but became huggable. It was him who was infinite yet was found in the womb of a young Jewish girl of no repute in the first advent. It was him who was spotless that bore the curse that was not his to bear, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So let this advent be a rememberer or remind us that it was divine humility that saved us. And I just want to leave us with some questions to reflect on but I'd just like to call uh, the people up who are going to be distributing communion here. So these people are kind of going to hop up and wash their hands and sanitise and make their way to the corner of the room. You're more than welcome to sit and reflect and pray and, yeah, if you feel like you want to take communion in your own time, you hop up and grab it and, yeah do as you need to so the questions that I want to leave for us as we kind of reflect on communion and humility as a whole is what do I spend most of my time thinking about am I focused on my own positional or material gain when I go back to work or whatever my responsibilities are during the week what does humility look like in that environment And like John did very practically, how might we and our lives point the world to Jesus as we go about our days?